0: Hi, I'm Abby from Harpersville, New York, a PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy resident at the University of Maryland, and currently, due to COVID-19, finding new ways to serve patients at a distance. You're listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Casey Talk, Assistant Professor in the Division of Pharmaceutical Outcomes and Policy at the University of North Carolina Ashelman School of Pharmacy, and Dr. Karen Gunning, Professor of Pharmacotherapy and Adjunct Professor of Family and Preventative Medicine at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah, about hormonal contraception and the important role that pharmacists can play to increase access to contraception.
1: I'm HaFan. And I'm
2: Elizabeth Hearn, a PGY1 community pharmacy resident. We're from the University
1: of Mississippi. Welcome to the Pharmacy Forward podcast. In this episode, we're exploring new frontiers in pharmacy practice, specifically the emerging role of pharmacists in the provision of hormonal contraception. While many forms of contraception have been traditionally available through pharmacies like condoms, spermicidal gels, and more recently emergency contraception, the availability of hormonal contraception through pharmacies seems like a natural progression in the pharmacist's scope of practice. Today, in March 2020, a dozen states allow pharmacists to either prescribe hormonal contraception or provide hormonal contraception under a statewide standing order, and it seems likely that more states will make hormonal contraception more accessible through pharmacists in the years to come.
2: Today, we'll talk with two experts about the future of pharmacist-provided contraception and the impact it could make in our nation's health. Our guests today are Dr. Casey Tok from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill Eshelman School of Pharmacy,
1: and Dr. Karen Gunning from the University of Utah College of Pharmacy. Dr. Tok's research primarily focuses on women's health, medication use in pregnancy, and access to contraception. And Dr. Gunning teaches about contraception in the PharmD curriculum. She's the current PGY2 ambulatory care residency program director and serves on the Utah State Board of Pharmacy.
2: In July of 2019, Dr. Tuck and Dr. Gunning wrote a featured manuscript in the Journal of the American Pharmacists Association entitled Pharmacists Prescribed Hormonal Contraception, a Review of the Current Landscape. So we are very fortunate to have these two passionate and knowledgeable voices on our podcast. Casey and Karen, welcome to the Pharmacy Forward podcast.
3: Pleasure to be here. It's great to be here. Thanks so much.
2: So as we were planning this episode of the Pharmacy Forward podcast, I was doing some research on the topic. I learned there was a brief effort a few years ago in Mississippi to make hormonal contraception more accessible through a statewide protocol. Unfortunately, that effort did not make it past committee in the state legislature. But there are many reasons why increasing access to hormonal contraception in the state of Mississippi would really make good public policy. First, Mississippi has one of the highest rates of unintended pregnancy, one of the highest rates of teen pregnancy, and unfortunately, the highest rate of infant mortality. Pharmacists-provided hormonal contraception isn't going to fix all of these issues, but it could have an impact. So I'm curious why you got involved and how you got started. Could you tell us a little bit more about your stories?
4: Yeah, I, so I began working on women's health research a number of years ago as a research coordinator. And as a coordinator, I developed an interest in these topics. And so when I went back to graduate school, I continued developing this interest and looking for opportunities to work on projects related to uh, contraception, pharmaceutical use in pregnancy, postpartum, etc. during my time as a graduate student. In fact, for a class, I began researching the role of pharmacists with hormonal contraception. And that was really the genesis of my current research interests today.
3: And I started um, in women's health about 22 years ago when I was hired on the same day as a male colleague, and I was the one picked to teach the women's health therapeutics that needed to be taught. My clinical practice is actually in a family medicine residency clinic where contraception issues come up quite a bit.
1: Now, I know the idea of pharmacists providing contraception in a community pharmacy setting may seem novel for a lot of our listeners. So could you explain exactly what a pharmacist would be allowed to do when providing contraception? Sure. So
3: we think about pharmacists providing contraception. This is something that pharmacists have been doing for as long as there's been contraception in terms of dispensing medication. But this is really providing the contraception to patients through a process In most states of direct provision, and in some states, in the case of Utah, through a standing order, much like you'd see for naloxone. So when we talk about this, many people say the word dispensing, but remember that's something that pharmacists have been doing for a long time. And this is actually provision of contraception. Some states have utilized the word furnish. um, That's in the state of California. That seems to be be something you do to your house. But I think the word provision makes a distinction from dispensing and really looks at pharmacists providing that care for
4: patients in need
3: of contraception.
4: Typically, the pharmacist-provided models are limited up to four types of self-administered hormonal contraception. These are all FDA-approved, of course. Uh, So oral forms, transdermal, vaginal, and the depo injection. As part of this expanded scope of practice, most, if not all, states require pharmacists to follow a protocol that typically involves a health and history screening to ensure the patient qualifies, identifying and discussing strategies for treatment, dispensing the contraceptive, providing counseling, some health education, and then in some cases, um, some states require a referral to a primary care practitioner as well.
1: Great. So we're really diving into how pharmacists can provide these services at the community pharmacy level. It seems like this may be a conversation that's hard to start, especially for pharmacists that haven't had that much exposure to women's health. How would one of us be able to start up this conversation with a patient?
3: So, one of the things that pharmacists and actually pharmacy technicians can really become involved in contraceptive provision is talking to patients. And so, most states have approved a standardized health and history form that is pretty similar across the states, gathering information to look for contraindications, what contraceptive may be the best fit for the patient, and if we need to refer the patient to a primary care provider. So, really, Approaching this in pharmacies across the states in a standardized way. And all of that health and history form is based upon the CDC medical eligibility criteria for contraception, which really is an incredibly rich document to support the pharmacist in backing up the evidence needed.
2: One concern I've heard is that taking away the need for an annual OBGYN appointment actually eliminates some females' primary care provider because a lot of times that may be the only doctor that young females see on a regular basis how does eliminating this appointment affect women's health
3: so that's a great question the really interesting thing is that many women believe, and actually many providers believe, that a woman needs a pap smear every year. And if you look in the medical eligibility criteria from the CDC, there actually isn't a requirement for any physical exam before provision of contraception, with the exception of a blood pressure check before the provision of combined oral contraceptives.
4: Some states have proactively attempted to to limit this concern by requiring patients to see their provider every so often, whether that's you know every two years or three years or whatever it may be, direct access at the pharmacy isn't necessarily eliminating an appointment uh, with the primary care provider.
1: Now that we know that it may not be entirely necessary to see a provider annually, could you clarify how giving pharmacists the ability to provide contraception would be different than allowing for over-the-counter access?
4: One thing I would like to point out is the distinction between over-the-counter access and this pharmacist-provided model that we're discussing. So the pharmacist provision model is still controlled. So pharmacists are still considered the the gatekeepers, but it does not require a prescription order from a primary care provider or other provider. Over-the-counter access would eliminate that gatekeeping.
3: And thinking about over-the-counter, you know, we definitely heard in Utah that especially OB-GYN providers, would prefer OTC contraception. I think as pharmacists, if we were to think about in contraception aisle in the pharmacy and seeing all of those packages with all those weird names as the, you know, branded generic name, how would a patient navigate a contraception aisle at the pharmacy, you know, certainly having OTC would provide the ultimate in access, but I don't think there's a way that patients would be able to figure out what they needed, especially new users without the services of an incredible community pharmacist, because that seems incredibly overwhelming to me to think about moving those shelves of particularly contraceptive pills, out into the OTC area and then just seeing what patients do with it. So given that there's some really specific discussion points, especially with even referring patients for other forms of contraception, things like IUDs, things like implants that really may be the best option for the patient, their patients are not going to get that kind of counseling from a box of OTC progestin-only contraceptives.
1: I think it really drives home the point about why OTC access isn't enough. We've got to have pharmacists there to help patients with the screening, the product selection, and the counseling part. Have you heard of any specific patient concerns with pharmacists providing the service?
4: There have been a number of studies that have looked at uh, direct pharmacy access for patients and their experiences uh, obtaining contraception directly at the pharmacy. And what the research overwhelmingly states is that patients have a positive experience with this and they uh, even have a preference with uh, going directly to the pharmacy.
3: I think one of the concerns is um, insurance coverage, and one of the things that I think about in thinking about access to contraception is that in many states, we haven't really figured out the coverage of the service for patients, and so there may be a direct fee, a um, cash fee that is uh, requested of patients to receive this service, but I think that's a, a barrier for many patients, potentially. That barrier would be even greater would probably not be insurance coverage of contraception if it was over-the-counter.
2: Thank you so much. And, and I want to go back to something that you said about insurance coverage for this service. I realize that may be a worry in a community pharmacy setting. Have you heard of any specific concerns coming from pharmacists in the community setting?
4: In North Carolina, we conducted a survey to gauge the interest of pharmacists in our state uh, regarding this scope of practice pharmacists provided uh, hormonal contraception and what we found were that there were a couple of themes relating to uh, some concerns that the community pharmacists had in particular one theme was reimbursement and so pharmacists were concerned that you know this is a lot of added responsibility and there wouldn't be sufficient reimbursement for that added responsibility and if you look nationwide uh, we still uh, even the states in which the scope of practice has been implemented. The reimbursement issue has not been ironed out as well as it could be, particularly for uh, private third-party payers. Some states require that Medicaid reimburses for the pharmacist's time, but that's not the case with private insurers. So that was, that was one uh, concern that pharmacists had in, in our state. And then uh, another concern that pharmacists uh, have expressed, at least in our survey, is adequate counseling space. Or privacy in their pharmacy in order to be able to conduct the protocol and dispense contraception.
3: I think time to be able to do this in an extraordinarily busy community pharmacy environment is also an important one to think about, and many pharmacists have expressed concerns about this. One of the ways that a few states have begun to make space for pharmacists to do these clinical duties are to begin to give technicians more responsibility. So in the state of Utah and the state of Idaho, technicians can now administer immunizations and thinking about does that then begin to give time and space for a pharmacist to provide the counseling and the assessment that only they can do in the pharmacy to provide access to contraceptive care. The other thing that I think has come out in several surveys of pharmacists and provision of contraception is that there is a lack of confidence in the skills that pharmacists have in providing this level of service. And it's actually not a knowledge issue. In most surveys, pharmacist knowledge is actually relatively high on this topic, but it's really how do I actually apply these skills to patients? And so there are several training programs out there and many states have implemented a CE requirement for people who are providing this service. And I think the best best way to do that is to actually practice these skills, to really have patient scenarios and assess how you would respond in those scenarios. So I think pharmacists really do have the knowledge. They, They need a little bit more practice, potentially, and a little bit more application of applying that knowledge. But there are training programs that are popping up across the country to do that.
1: When looking at utilizing the pharmacist provision model, have you heard any concerns from providers or even better, have you gotten any support from your providers in your respective states?
3: So when you think about pharmacists providing access to contraception, think about the patients that live in the most rural areas of areas of your state. They may not have access to um, primary care or uh, OB-GYN care at all in their county or in their living area, and but they do have access in many cases to a pharmacist. So to be able to provide access to contraception in rural and underserved areas is a huge point of pharmacist provided contraception. And actually in Utah, some of our biggest advocates were our Rural Nurses Association who really see the lack of access as a barrier to women deciding on their contraceptive needs
4: What we've heard is that there's some concern that we're replacing one barrier with another. So currently, many women across the U.S. need to see their primary care practitioner to obtain a prescription for contraception. Now they'll need to see a pharmacist. So many many in the physician community here in North Carolina have advocated for expanded access to contraception, but not necessarily through pharmacist-provided models, but through over-the-counter models. And so what we're doing is talking to them about uh, the potential with precinct access, particularly in rural areas and underserved areas where pharmacies currently are and may be able to provide the service.
2: You know, those are great points. And I think it's very compelling for pharmacists to get involved, especially in states with largely rural areas like ours here in Mississippi. You both mentioned providing contraception under protocol. And in our state, we just are not there yet. However, I'm currently working under a collaborative practice agreement with a provider in my clinic where I can prescribe certain medications under that doctor's authority. Could that be an alternative instead of having to go through the great process of getting statewide legislation passed for a standing order? What do you all think about that?
3: For a standing order, um, standing orders are essentially prescriptive authority that is signed by one person. So in the state of Utah, there is a standing order signed by the medical director of the Department of Health that would allow any pharmacist who enrolls within that standing order to provide prescriptions for patients for self-administered contraceptives. It is a little bit different process from a collaborative practice agreement. And in the case of being signed by the health department really then can have access to any pharmacy even those who may not have a provider in their community that would sign you know a collaborative practice agreement so it really expands the access to contraception provision in a way that's different than collaborative practice agreement
1: in terms of expanding access, I know that you guys have brought that up a lot. I think that's always on the forefront of all of our minds as healthcare providers. What are some steps that practitioners across the U.S. and our listeners, what can they do to push this service forward? Are there ways that we could advocate for this change?
4: In North Carolina, we are starting with getting consensus from the pharmacy community. So starting there as pharmacists would be the major players in this, in this scope of practice. And then from there, you know, we're building consensus with our medical associations and talk about some of the very points about the benefits of reducing unattended pregnancies and expanding access to contraception in the pharmacy.
3: So, the uh, agreement or support of both pharmacists and patients in the community is very important, as well as providers. I think the other group that pharmacists and supporters of this need to keep in mind as our legislators. And thinking about unintended pregnancies and particularly the impact of the cost of unintended pregnancies on Medicaid budgets in the state is really important. I think that was very, very impactful to our legislature when discussing this issue. Approaching it from a, this is something that could potentially reduce cost to the state Women being able to access contraception, having an impact on um, state Medicaid budgets, which of course in every state I would imagine, not just the state of Utah or the state of North Carolina, is really important to our legislators. The other group that we haven't really talked about much, but it's a huge group of advocates, is students. And in Utah, this legislation was entirely supported and pushed and written and labored over by an incredible group of students who saw a need and saw an opportunity for advocacy and did an incredible job of making this a reality in our state. And I think many people would not think that Utah would be in the first dozen states to provide this service, but it passed through the legislature without a single no vote. So I think Thinking about the energy and the passions of our students can be really positive in terms of bringing this legislation forward.
2: Wow, that's, that's amazing. As a recent graduate, a former student, I can really see how students can make a very big impact. Do either of you foresee the service spreading to other states or potentially
4: nationwide? I'm really excited to see how this practice evolves and what, we, what sort of benefits we see from it anything that we can do to address health disparities and equity and improving access to health services should be championed and so as we saw with vaccinations in the pharmacy that you know there were a few states that were sort of at the forefront that were a little bit more vanguard and gave pharmacists greater latitude and authorization to administer vaccines and we saw with these laboratories that pharmacists were very much able to administer vaccines safely and uh, become major players in U.S. public health system. And So it started out in a few states and then eventually expanded to all states. So um, I see a similar trend happening with hormonal contraception provision.
1: Thank you both so much for being here today with us, Doctors Talk and Gunning. It's important for pharmacists to be aware of the potential new services that they can offer and the benefits that would come along with those services.
2: Yes. Thank you all so much. I look forward to seeing how this new frontier in pharmacy practice takes off. I hope our listeners enjoy this conversation as much as I have.
0: Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. If you like this podcast, please subscribe using your favorite podcast app, and tell all of your pharmacy friends and colleagues. Be sure to rate us and send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a story you'd like to share about someone who's transforming knowledge into action, send us an email. Pharmacy Forward is produced by the Division of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. For more information about our professional development programs, visit pharmacycpd.org. That's pharmacycpd.org. This episode was conceived and developed by Elizabeth Hearn, Elizabeth Yett, Bianca Lascano, Markesha Cook, Ha Fan, Megan Brown, Lori Fleming, Josh Fleming, and Stuart Haynes.